Um, grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so great uh, to be able to see your physical eyeballs, uh, for one. And you can see my full face, which I don't know if that's good or not, but there you go. That's what I, that's what I have. I was born with it. It's not going to change. Uh, and everybody else joining us online, it's so great that we can, in this strange time, at least offer that for us to be together this year for Easter. And this is a big deal. This week is a big deal for us in the Christian calendar, looking specifically at Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Sometimes we call it Holy Week or Passion Week. But for many of us, even if we are not within the Christian tradition, we know that this is a time to look specifically at Jesus, to think about Jesus, to look historically at who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And to look specifically at Jesus, Jesus dying, being crucified by the Romans, and him rising back from the dead. But... We can become overly familiar with this kind of thing. We can become overly familiar with statements like, Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead, without actually wrestling with the significance, truth, or the implications of that being true. So just hear me out. If this is true, the implications are massive. If it is true that Jesus died, why does it matter? If it is true that Jesus rose, everything matters. And so what do we do with all of this? What do you and I do with all of this this morning? Well, I think the pandemic has done a few things to us in this last year that allow us to uniquely reflect on a day like today. It's very important because in our Western culture, we don't quite know what to do with death. You with me on that? Like anyone this week was like, you know what I wanna do? I wanna reflect on death some more. Right? Now, that's not kind of in the forefront of our mind of like, let's just think of my impending, inevitable end in death. That's super great. Existentially, let me just sit with that on a daily basis, right? We don't do that. But culturally, we're also not encouraged to. We're not encouraged to wrestle with the reality of pain, suffering, and inevitable death. So in our culture today, we don't really know what to do with it. So we just kind of say, well, it's coming. I guess it is, yeah. Death rate's still hovering around 100%, yeah? So it's coming for me, uh, but I, I just don't really need to look at it because we all just end up in a better place anyway. And so what happens is we don't look at death, we kind of shrug at it, and then if you sprinkle in some of our modern commitment in our Western culture to materialism and naturalism, leaving no room for miracles or the supernatural, we do everything we can throughout our life to deflect our gaze from death, to deflect our gaze from suffering, to deflect our gaze from pain. And we tried our best to live the rest of our life not looking at death generally, but specifically avoiding our own mortality. And here's what's unique about the Christian tradition and the Christian story. This centerpiece of the Christian good news message is death. The centerpiece of everything rising and falling and the hope that we have now and in the future is based on a death. And not just a death, but the death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It rides on that. And this is so unique when compared to other world religions or philosophies, secular philosophies that we can come up with. But it puts us in a tough spot culturally today in the West because we cannot make sense of something we do not consider. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? We cannot make sense of something. We cannot experience the significance of something that we do not ever consider. And whether Jesus Christ was born into history, 
was truly who he claimed to be as the God become man and died and truly rose to silence the power of death and save everyone who trusts in him is the most important question that you can ever ask and answer. And that's what today's about. And if we just take stock of 2020 and 2021, we kind of just want to hit the reset button, yeah? Just want to like unplug it and plug it back in to see if it just gets better. But for all of us, this has been a challenging year for so many reasons. There has just been unending reasons for unrest, conflict of all sorts in the fabric of our culture, stress and pain and loss and grief compounded by a low-grade hum of anxiety that just kind of floats on us. It's just this funk. We don't know where it came from or why it's there, but it just hovers. And this is all agitated by a pandemic that no one seems to be able to get a handle on. A year of political posturing on every single issue, economic downturn and depression, infighting and social isolation that we're all feeling, leaving us disillusioned. Good year, yeah? But we have to be honest with this instead of just running off into trinkets and entertainment and distraction and our culture doesn't encourage us to do so. And the Christian gospel is that we actually are encouraged not to just avoid pain, suffering, angst, and that kind of existential thing that sits in us, but to look it right in the eyes and then try to look for hope despite it. That's what Resurrection Sunday is about. And so today we're going to look specifically at one of the gospel biographies of Jesus written by John that speaks to some of this, okay? So let's go John 20, and it reflects a little bit what Steve read from Luke, another biography of Jesus. And watch how it starts, John 20, verse 1 through 2. Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone of the tomb had been pushed away from the tomb. Okay, watch this. So she ran away, good call, and went to Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. All right, so here we have Mary, the first eyewitness, not to the resurrection, but to the empty tomb. She shows up, Jesus' body is gone, okay? And she runs away. Now, I love this because it's already culturally shocking. In the first century, Women were not, uh, didn't have the same kind of public affairs as men in that culture at the time, in a patriarchal culture, and they also weren't allowed to be witnesses in a court of law. And so right away, the gospel story is already starting to push on some of the things that we would say, well, this maybe was made up after the fact, or we're just kind of like packed, backfilled to make more sense of it. Already from this, it's shocking culturally, and it's already not strong in our normal human terms. And notice that she arrives at this garden tomb, and it's been tampered with, right? Shows up, it's been tampered with, something's wrong, slightly dark, it's still really early in the morning, and then she runs away. Now, I love this because Mary is the one who survives in the horror movie, right? She's the one that survives. She's the one that has common sense. She's not the one that shows up and goes, oh, did you hear that noise? Let's go into the dark tomb that's been tempered with, right? So she's in a cemetery and it's still dark and she runs away, okay? So good call, Mary runs away and goes and tells Peter and John what happened. But notice what she does and notice what she doesn't do. She sees the evidence, which is the empty tomb, and then she comes up with an explanation. And the explanation of the evidence 
is that Jesus' body must have been tampered with and taken away by somebody. This must be a hoax. This must be some kind of ploy. But notice what she doesn't say to the disciples. She doesn't run to them and go, Jesus has been resurrected. Do you know why? Because just like us, their mortality rate hovered around 100%. All right? So we have to be careful because in our post-enlightenment scientific age, we have this thing called C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, where in our enlightenment, in our rational faculties, we look back on them and we're like, silly peasants, of course they thought that he resurrected. We know that doesn't happen anymore. We have to give them far more credit because people do not resurrect from the dead. So Mary doesn't go to Peter and John and say, guys, guess what? He did it. He did it. We knew he was going to do it. He told us he was going to do it. And guess what? He did it. She doesn't do that. She shows up and goes, what in the world? Like, where is his body? Where did it go? What is happening? And her explanation is actually pretty reasonable, right? Like I said, well, somebody must have gone in there and stole it. Must have beat the Roman guards, pulled the stone back by themselves, already awesome, right? Taken Jesus's dead, naked body uh, and ran off with it. That maybe that's what's happened, okay? So now they're disillusioned altogether, not knowing what in the world happens. And she runs off to tell Peter and John. Now watch this, I love this. Verse three through 10. So Peter heard what Mary said and went out with the other disciple who still hasn't named himself. It's John, the author, by the way, watch this. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together really fast. They were together at the same place. But then the other disciple, (coughs) me, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love these kinds of things put into scripture because you can just tell these are just humans. And he's just reminding Peter, like, remember the time I beat you in that race? Like, remember the time we went to the tomb? Yeah, I beat you, right? Okay, and stooping to look in, John gets there first. He makes sure we know that. He stoops, he looks into the tomb, doesn't go in, but he looks in and he saw the linen cloths, the burial, burial garments lying there, but he didn't go in. But then Peter came following him and he went right in. Okay, so I love to see because John gets there first and he's like, ah! he stops, okay, kind of peeking in and Peter just runs straight in. Like, oh man, I can't believe you beat me again, right? Like, that, that's what's happening here. Okay, Peter, um, he's usually rash all throughout the Gospels. That's it. That's Peter. This is just Peter running straight in. Uh, He's the one that dies in the horror movie. Okay, he's the one that doesn't survive. Okay, then Peter came following him, went right in, and he saw the linen cloths lying there on the stone and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's face, not lying with the linen, but folded up in a place by itself. That's significant, we'll come back to it. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, in case you forgot, also went in and he saw and believed. What did he believe though? For as yet, they did not understand the scriptures that he, Jesus, must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went home. Okay, there's so much going on here. Not just a race between Peter and John. But you have to understand that these two hear what Mary says, and then what do they do? Sit back and go, yeah, okay, we'll accept it. That makes sense. No, they go check it out for themselves. They go and look into Mary's explanation of the evidence and check it out for themselves. Let me ask you a question. Have you done that? Have you done this with the resurrection? Have you done this with the empty tomb? Or have you just taken it? on, well, I guess, okay, Christians believe that, or not, it's a fairy tale, or like future optimism, they had to kind of do something. Have you 
looked into this? Have you examined the historical evidence behind the empty tomb? Have you actually considered this and done it for yourself? And if you have not, in, your, in the third lockdown, which is coming, by the way, future hope, there you go. In the third lockdown, you can study the resurrection, all right? Talk to me, I'd love to show you. Not from everybody who already holds your presuppositions on YouTube. Anybody can do that. You wanna live in an echo chamber of people that already agree with you? YouTube is perfect. Because you can decide who you, who you listen to, which ones you thumb up and thumb down, not people who already hold your presuppositions, not people who already think that this is a fairy tale, not people who have no room for the supernatural because they've bought into a secular, modern, naturalistic framework. Not them, historians, scholars, three quarters of them, Christian and non, actually say that Jesus was buried and that his tomb was empty. But why it was empty and how it was empty makes all the difference. It's a big deal. How we answer that question is so important and it radically changes everything about life, everything. So I wanna encourage you to explore the evidence, explore the reasons for belief. Look into the empty tomb like Peter, like John. Go peer into it. Go look into it for yourself because listen, something happened that morning. Something did. How we explain what happened matters. It is so significant. But let me tell you something. 300 years after that morning, half of the Roman Empire bowed a knee to very alive King Jesus and not to Caesar. Half of the Roman Empire. And today, despite the secular myth that we have progressed past God, the globe is more religious and more Christian today than ever before. Justin Bieber has 70 million monthly listens on Spotify. Jesus has over a billion people following him every day. Something happened that morning. What did they find? Well, they found an empty tomb and nobody in a pile of grave clothes. We have to understand a little bit about the Jewish custom of burial and, and, and those customs in the ancient Near East. They did not uh, cremate like the Romans and the Greeks and they didn't embalm like mummies like the Egyptians. Instead, Jews would actually wrap the body in linen strips and spices and oil and they would lay the body on its back no coffin, completely exposed in a tomb, right? So somewhere in the belly of the earth, that was the imagery, that they were put back in the earth from dust you came to dust you shall return, right? But what was interesting is they would leave the face open. They would not wrap the face. They would lay a linen cloth on top of the face and leave it there. Now what was crazy about this detail right here is that in the ancient Near East, when you were finished a meal, you would take the face cloth that you were using to wipe your face and you would fold it up and you would put it down neatly to tell the servants that you were done. To tell the servants that it is finished. And Jesus does this himself. So it's already strange that the linen cloths are there. Where is dead naked Jesus? It's the question. But then his face cloth is folded saying something has happened and I'm not going back. And Jesus in this moment leaves his grave clothes behind in the tomb that day because he is never going back. He is never going back. It is finished. But they're crushed. Did you catch that? Like they go home. 
they go home. Like, like Peter goes back to his fishing boat because a few days later, Jesus shows up and he's fishing. Like he went back to daddy's business because he's like, I guess that's done. Like, I guess our hope is gone. With Jesus dead, Christianity is dead. With Jesus gone, their hopes are gone. So they go, they go home. But watch what happens next. Verse 11 through 16. But Mary, she did not. She stood weeping, mourning outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb again. I think she's standing there. She, has, she just can't believe it. She doesn't know what to do. She's sitting there. She's crying. She's like, my friend, my teacher, my, my Lord, Jesus. I, fall, I gave him my entire life. I know what he did to me. I was there. Like he saved me. He rescued me. I knew his power, right? And he's gone. And then she's like looking back in going like, he's gone. Like, well, what is going on, right? And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was, one at the head and one at her feet. Then they said to her, woman, that's not like woman. That's like woman. <laughs> but our English doesn't help sometimes. It's like, woman. It's like, okay, angels, rude. Why are you weeping? She said to them. They have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Notice he still isn't saying he rose from the dead. All right, he's not saying that. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. What does that mean? I have no idea. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener. Okay, I love this. Like imagine later Mary's telling, telling the, the, the disciples like, and then I was like, I thought he was the gardener, LOL, right? She thinks that he's the gardener. Sir, if you have carried him away, it's like maybe you did something with his body, you weird gardener hanging out in the dark here. Like where did you put his, his body? You should be dealing with flowers, not bodies. Where is he, right? Tell me where have you put him and I'll take him away. I'll go do something with Jesus' body. And Jesus said to her, one word, watch this, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. It's in the moment that Jesus calls Mary by name that she sees Jesus. And today, this is the same thing that is on offer for you and I. My prayer all week is that today Jesus will call your name, that he would call you by name, that he would reach past all of the things that, that stand as barriers between us and him. And he would call you by your name and you would recognize him for who he is because that's what Mary experienced that day. And she was never the same. But notice that that hope, that joy that she experienced came after a long time of weeping, a time of disillusionment, a time of her hopes being completely laid bare. Everything has been ruined. But you have to understand, this is so important that Christianity does not avoid pain and suffering or dismiss it as an illusion or just shrug our shoulders at it because, hey, we're just highly evolved animals and it's just a part of life. It's natural. But it actually invites us to look right at it and then offers us true hope and healing. That's the gospel. And notice the hyperlink of the garden here. Around Reach Montreal, we talk about hyperlinks because the Bible is so full of them. Call them Easter eggs. Some of you guys love Marvel, the Marvel Universe Easter eggs, and you're freaking out, jumping off of your couch, spilling your Red Bull all over the place when you see something. It's like, oh, that's, that's to the Avengers, nah. Okay, so we do that. Maybe you don't make that noise, but that was just, that was for you. I do, I do that, I make that noise. Um, as you can tell, the sweat and the noise. Okay, so 
But these are hyperlinks. So when the, when the Bible authors, when the biblical authors are trying to show us something and point us back to another place, there's Easter eggs that are left for us to be like, wow, that's what that was meaning. That's why that was significant. And that's exactly what John does for us here because it's a hyperlink from one garden all the way back to the first garden in the first pages in the origin story of Genesis. And what John is trying to show us, everybody, is that what was lost in the first garden has just been restored in the garden tomb. And you have to understand the story because back in the very first garden with the origin story of Genesis, everything was good. Everything was where it was supposed to be. Everything was good. Life was full. God assigns purpose and identity and meaning to everything until it's not good anymore, right? He creates human beings to know him and be known by him and to take care of everything else that he puts on the earth and then things break down. You remember the story, right? And rather than live life dependent upon God and looking to God to give them meaning, to, to give them the definition of what is right and good and true, they go and take it for themselves. They choose self-rule over God's rule and they choose independence from God instead of dependence upon God. And where does it lead us? Well, it leads us to not just disappointment, but to rebellion and to death. And that's how the story goes and that starts in the garden and the lie from the garden, the lie that is believed in the garden is the same lie that fights for you and I to believe and give allegiance to and give our life to, which is be in charge of your own life. Live your truth, do you. If you don't, you're gonna miss out. God is a killjoy, he's not after your good. So go and get it, go and get yours, go and be blessed, go and be happy, go and do you. That's the same lie of the garden and it is the same lie in the sermon of our culture today. And all it does is it tells us to substitute self for God and that is what sin is. So just understand, if you haven't been around church for a while and you've heard definitions of sin that are not helpful, sin is not some religious moral code that hypocrites try to keep and then just rub in our face when we don't. And it's also not kind of a behavioral issue at all. Sin at its core, biblically, is a relational issue. It's a relational breach between you not other people. It's not other people's fault. It's yours. It's between you and God. And there's a relational breach because you and I have all exchanged dependence upon God for independence from him. And then we go and we live our life looking for satisfaction and, and life in things that ultimately will only be taken away by death. That's the whole story of the Bible is that we go and live for non-gods, thinking that they will give us what God can, and they ultimately disappoint and only end in death. So hear me, regardless of how much money you make, how cute your family is, how nice your house is, how many people think you're generally awesome, death wipes the slate entirely clean. It's gone. It did not matter. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. It is gone. It is forgotten. Some of us don't even know our great-grandparents' -grand names. Imagine on the scope of eternity until the sun just burns out, right? None of it matters. And since the fall, we've been running around outside the garden trying to get back in. And right here in the garden tomb, everybody, God answers sin by substituting himself for humanity. Whereas in the first garden, we have a substitution, a tragic exchange of humanity in the place of God. 
In this garden tomb, we have God coming with the great exchange to substitute himself for you and me and ultimately rescue us from the one thing that we have no control over and that's death itself. And notice that Mary, it's when Jesus says her name that she recognizes him. Let me just say to you, God sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He hears you. He has seen this last year for you. He sees you when no one else does. He knows you and knows who you are when no one else sees you. He sees you and I at our worst, but still comes towards us to give us his best. And that is the story of Easter. And watch how this ends, chapter 20. Watch this, verse 19. And on the evening of that day, the same day, first day of the week on Sunday night, the doors being locked, the disciples are hiding out where the disciples were in fear of the Jews. Because they're like, hey, if the Jews got a hold of Jesus and got rid of him, they're just gonna come and get rid of us too. That's how you squash a movement. Kill their leader and then kill the followers, right? So they're afraid, hiding out. Then Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace, peace be with you. Not in the Roman Catholic sense, like we're just kind of like, peace be with you and also with you, okay? This is different. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side to be like, hey, legit, it's me. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Okay, here's, here's what's happening here. They're devastated. They're devastated. So you wanna talk about lockdown, right? They're in lockdown out of fear for their life. The crucifixion was so devastating to see and they're crushed. Their teacher, their leader, their friend, their Lord, Jesus, he's gone. And because of that, all hope is lost. And they're sitting and they're being confronted with their vulnerability, their fragility, their mortality. And this is what crisis does. Crisis always comes and exposes us to what is always true. And that is where we're vulnerable, we're fragile, and that we're mortal. We're mere mortals. And so they're hiding. They're afraid. And they're afraid of death. Now, you know that's universal, right? Like, you know, a fear of death is like a universal thing. Like psychologists identify it as the number one fear, which makes sense, right? It's like spiders, dead. Okay, right. I mean, I want spiders dead, right? Like, that's usually what you do. Okay, but, but death is the number one fear that psychologists identify either of our own death or our loved ones because there's something so out of our control in this. And so what do we do to cope with this? Well, in our modern secular cultural thing that we've created here, well, we just stay distracted, we stay entertained and we just live for the moment. But let me propose something. It's in our still, quiet, undistracted moments night after night when we are left alone with our thoughts and our head hits the pillow that we are all made aware of our own death, that we are not guaranteed a breath the next morning and that your and my shared destiny, regardless of how old we are, where we come from, what language we speak is death. And there's something so humbling. There's something so beautiful about considering this well To reflect on our death well allows us to reflect on our life well. No wonder we have a culture full of people not living life well. And as a matter of fact, the things that we do look for in life are crushing us. 
because we're not reflecting well on death, so we're not reflecting well on life. Non-Christian, secular author called Brian Greene wrote a book called Until the End of Time. It's fascinating. It's very profound. He says this, if the immediate demise of humanity, so right now, like everything, gone, destroyed, would render life meaningless, then the same is true even if the end is far off. Everybody, this is a profound observation on the secular, materialist framework of the West. If there is nothing before or beyond the material world, human civilization itself will eventually disappear without a trace. So just sit with that. Sit with that being the end. Sit with that being the telos. Without a trace, gone. All meaning, all beauty, all pleasure, even if real, is only temporary. It's only temporary and ultimately meaningless on a ash heap of an eternal insignificance. If that doesn't humble you, nothing will. Nothing will. C.S. Lewis, the great um, philosopher and writer, atheist turned Christian, wrote an article in 1948 called Living in an Atomic Age. And it was to just speak to the fear that everybody had with the atomic bomb being invented and being threatened in the global kind of warfare that was happening at the time. Listen to what he says. It'll be up here on the screen. Watch this. What were your views about the ultimate future of civilization before the atomic bomb? What did you think all this effort of humanity was to come to in the end? The whole story is going to end in nothing. If nature is all that exists, that is, if there is no God, then all of human civilization will eventually die with the death of the sun, and so humanity will turn out to have been an accidental flicker, and there will be no one even to remember it. Happy Easter. Enjoy this afternoon, sitting with existential dread upon you. This is meaningless. It's so good, but it's going to be meaningless. Okay, this is not to bum us out, but listen, we have to be intellectually honest about this stuff. We have to, because our culture is not. We have to be honest about this. We have to consider it long enough to go, wait, wait, what? Like, and if that's the case, then, then yeah, that's true. Everything I accomplish, everything I work towards for a future good, alleviating poverty, healing trauma, pursuing justice is temporary and ultimately without a secure meaning or end goal, if this is the case. And in our individualistic culture, with no moral absolutes, just a moving target of morality for our cultural day and age, with no definition of true origins, identity, or destiny, we shrug our shoulder at death and embrace it as a part of life. When, listen to me, death is the most unnatural thing to happen to life. If we're intellectually honest, death is the reversal of all things that give you life. It is a huge impending delete button on everything you love. So this Easter, I wanna remind you that we have no hope at all. We have no hope unless, we have no hope for the present or the future unless, unless there is a God who has promised to guide history, not to just an inevitable end, but to a brand new beginning. 
a God that has actually reached into the future and pulled future restoration and hope into the present for you and I to taste and see and move towards. And that's the story of Easter. This is what the resurrection confronts in us. This is what the resurrection redeems, that we are truly moving towards a true end because God himself has already answered death. Because God himself has already silenced the power of the grave. He has already silenced the silencer of all meaning in life by coming and conquering it, by coming and stepping into something that he did not have to experience and going into it and taking death on himself to offer you and I life. That is what resurrection is all about. Two of you are excited. I'm really glad you're gonna know Jesus today. Thankfully, the gospel offers us a true and better story. One of a God that rather than make peace with death, takes it as seriously as the disruption that it is and steps into it and through it to offer us peace. And that's why Jesus steps in and tells them peace. Peace. Now for us, it's like peace. But in the ancient context, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, in the original manuscripts, peace is way more than just peace. It's shalom. And it's not just the absence of conflict and strife, although it is that, it's wholeness, it's completion, it's security, it's, it's pleasure, it's satisfaction in the full. And Jesus shows up to all of his friends who abandoned him the night of his crucifixion. And they're hiding out, probably ashamed, full of guilt, racked with how they don't meet, meet the, the standard at all. And Jesus goes through locked doors, goes through all of their barriers, all of their doubts, all of their guilt, all of their shame, all of their downfalls, and all of their flaws, and tells them peace. If death is taken care of, nothing else can take this from us. And he's pointing back to John 14, where Jesus leaves his disciples with his last words. And he says, peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. So understand that peace with God, peace that comes from God gives us peace, the peace of God. And that's what Jesus is coming to offer. And on the day that Jesus is crucified, the last words that fall off his lips, and we'll close here. The last words that fall off his lips, it's one word in Greek and it's tetelestai. Say tetelestai. Amazing, your masks help a lot with that. You could have just lip synced and everyone would have thought you said it. So that's good. Te telestai. And in English, it comes through as it is finished. Notice Jesus doesn't hang on the cross and say, I am finished. He doesn't say it will be finished. He says, it is finished. What is Jesus talking about there? Well, it's a technical term in the ancient context, te telestai had two uses. The first one would be a, a military general would ride back into town and yell, Te Telestai, to announce like the spoils of war and the victory that they've just won in a battle. But the second use was a certificate of debt. So you get a receipt if you paid a debt and they would mark Te Telestai on top of it when it was paid in full to say it is finished. You're free of this burden. You're free of paying this back. And I think Jesus was doing this to capture both of these things. That he announces te telestai. He announces it is finished because he is not just announcing his impending victory over the power and penalty of sin, but that he is also 
announcing his ransom payment for you and me to free us from sin and death itself. And just like the folded face covering, Jesus is saying it is, is finished. So what does this mean for us? Well, Jesus' resurrection, if true, doesn't just mean that we get to look forward to going to heaven when we die. That's, that's foreign from the scriptures. That's not a biblical concept at all. Instead, the resurrection actually shows us that heaven was pulled out of the future and brought into our present and dropped right in front of us. Jesus' resurrection does exactly that. It pulls the future into the present. It's not just something that gives us optimism for the present, just like, well, it'll get better. Let's put rainbows in our window. Why? Like, it doesn't just do that. Why would it? But it also shows us that it gives us a foretaste of the future, of a new creation, of a new heaven and earth. It pulls this guaranteed future restoration of all things to the present to start undoing and reversing brokenness and shame and destruction and decay brought into the world by sin, starting with you and me. An N.T. Wright Anglican bishop writes this, watch. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices and pains of the present, this present world, must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice and violence and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things and that we will work and plan, that he will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus' resurrection is true, it is in Jesus' resurrection that we have a reversal of everything that actually threatens life. That on that day, when Mary and Peter and John showed up and then experienced the peace of the resurrected Jesus, that on that day, death itself is defanged. But not just death. So is shame. So is guilt. So is regret. So is anger. So is dysfunction. So is brokenness. So is violence, abuse, and injustice. It's all defanged that we're moving towards the renewal of all things, that all wrongs will be made right, all things will be restored, and it starts now. And it starts in you, and it starts in me. And it shows us that this Jesus, that death could not hold Jesus because he's the author of life. So hear me, resurrection is not merely historical speculation. It's not religious imagination or naive optimism. It's an open invitation. It's an open invitation for us to peer into the garden tomb and turn from self-rule to the rightful rule of God, to lay down control and to surrender our life to the one who actually holds it in his hand. And whereas the Bible starts with a heaven and an earth and God dwelling with man, we're moving towards a new heaven, a renewed earth with God again dwelling with us in a garden city. Watch this, I'll leave you with this. 
Revelation 21, the last few pages of the Bible, says this. This is John. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All things, all these things are gone forever. And the one, one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And he also says, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. Today, this is our invitation. But resurrected life, resurrection is only for the crucified. This new life is only for those of us who let go of our old life. Us experiencing this life so full that death won't touch actually implies that we must die to self now so that we can enjoy this now and forever. And we need so much more, everybody. We need so much more than a fix on this life. We need a new life. And that is what the gospel offers. New life, new power, new hope, a new mind, new thoughts, new beliefs, new desires, and a new spirit. And that is on offer to us today and forever. Join me as I stand and pray to that end. Mighty God, death has no say over you. I pray that right now, just as Jesus, you walked through locked doors to meet your disciples in their shame and their guilt, to meet them in their, uh, the barriers that they had put up out of fear. I pray that you would walk through barriers right now in this room. I pray that you would walk through barriers in our own heart for all of us who are under the sound of my voice, that today would be the day that we come, that we open our mouth, that we open our mind, that we open our eyes and our heart to the reality of your resurrection power over Satan, sin, and death. And that, Lord, if this is true and this is our inevitable end, that you would drop it and make it real. You would make it reality in our heart as we move towards and become aligned with the true inevitable end of the restoration of all things. I pray that you would make that true right now and real in our hearts by the power of your spirit and it would be done for the only name that matters in Jesus' name, amen.